Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap podcast, your shorthand guide to the TV industry news of the week. I'm Hannah Boulder, a reporter at Broadcast, and I'm joined today with senior reporter Max Goldbart and international editor John Elms. On this week's podcast, I'll be unpacking the delayed BBC annual report and taking a look at the GCMS committee into the future of PSBs, which called to the stand Netflix, Sky and Channel 5. So guys, how's life been treating you this week? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm good, Hannah. Thanks. It's been a it's been a really busy one for everyone. I think on the broadcast editorial team, the crack team, as we often call it, you know, the hit squad. Um, but yeah, generally generally good. Forward to an entertaining podcast. I'm loving the reference to us as a hit squad. That's that's fantastic. That's one of my highlights of the week. So we we so we, we reunited this week. In the flesh, we all joined each other in the office first day back since the pandemic. It's nice to see you guys. Yeah. yeah. And there are some sore heads today after oh, really? uh, yeah. a group of six or less than us visited the pub in Caledonian Road. I, I, I left relatively early so as to get rid of the sore head potential mm-hmm. and also get home to Bognor Regis, which is quite far from Caledonian Road. Yeah. That was a journey. Uh, So this week was quite a big week. We had the BBC annual report, which came out, and Max has been buried deep in it. So I don't know if you could kind of reel off some key takeaways that you got from it. Yeah, it's easy to... um, Because Tim Davies so new in the job, we we spoke about him at length a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's easy for for Davy joining to kind of dominate the um, the commentary about the, the BBC at the moment. But looking looking back in the annual report, which covers, so it covers the period to the 31st of March 2020, which is interesting. So there's actually very little coronavirus stuff in there because it was, I mean, so lockdown had happened a week before. So the true impact hasn't emerged yet. But even without that, there are now four, what, what, what I... Um, what my eyes immediately fell on is forecasts for more than 300 million pounds worth of additional savings over the next two years that's on top of around about cumulative sort of six seven hundred million worth so by the time uh, we get to the end of 2022 the bbc would have is targeted to save a billion pounds in over a five-year period so there are clearly a lot of tough decisions to be made and, and to, to now bring Tim Davy into it. He clearly is communicating that the tough decisions can be efficient enough that they don't necessarily have to mean the BBC uh, either delivers lower quality content or lower quality journalism or, or whatever it might be. Um, and some, some small parts of, of the annual report were devoted to that, but no doubt things are only going to get worse with coronavirus uh, and there are some uh, links back to that. And I think it's very easy to assume that a publicly funded broadcaster won't be impacted by this sort of economic collapse, but it's clear that there are going to be some impacts, production slowdowns and, and BBC studios is going to, is going to take a bit of a hit. Uh, and that was something else clearly again, because the, the annual report goes up, to the pre-coronavirus era. Studios had a really good year, returned nearly 300 million quid to the BBC, which is a record. Profits went up, spearheaded in part by the the acquisition of UK TV, um, which helped what's called the branded services division to weigh increased profits. That 
again, ignoring coronavirus, that 300 million record return to the BBC is currently not negating the loss of license fee income. License fee income is down because the government isn't giving the BBC any money anymore to fund over 75s, free licenses for the over 75s. That drop was around 170 million, whereas the increase, the BBC Studios record return was a circa 30 million increase. So the pressure is on for commercial revenues to, to keep returning more to the BBC, but it's hard to see how that 30 million to 170 million gap is going to be closed when we've got an economic downturn uh, driven by a pandemic. So I think some really, um, some really difficult decisions coming up and it will be fascinating in, well, about probably about 10 months time when the next annual report comes out and the, the true impact of all of this really, um, really gets told. What kind of, um, have you been talking to any producers kind of off the back of this? Like what's, what's the vibe in the room after it was announced? Mm, yeah, we're mostly, people are, like, like I said, mostly talking about Tim Davey, I think more so than, than getting into the weeds of the annual report. And I often, I, I think this is my third annual report. And I, I, I often think that maybe we and people at the BBC believe that like the entire country reads it. <laughs> and like, there's, they're always like putting tweets out saying how much value the license fee brings to tie in with the, with the annual report coming out. And I just think, people who don't follow this industry really closely just looking at those tweets and are thinking why why am I being told at 1pm on a Tuesday that this is what I get for my £157.50 so so the focus I think the focus has been more on Tim who again has impressed he's impressed people I think in two speaking appearances this week he did an RTS session a couple of hours ago we're recording on Thursday 17th September and in the in the press briefing following the report, he 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 was just saying stuff. He was really um, elaborating on a lot of the points that he made in his maiden speech uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. To a point where, uh, you know, if he doesn't follow through on on some of these elaborations, then he'll really get called out. And these aren't things that he's saying are going to happen in in two or three years time. This is to do with diversity, and this is to do with the kind of commissioning shakeup. He's not saying this is happening in two years. He's saying this is happening like before this year is out. These are reviews that he's put in put into place that will have been decided upon probably probably by the time we get to Christmas. Max, it was interesting you said, as you say, the focus has been on Tim um, as the new man in the the hot seat, as it were. And I suppose and he's been well received. And you said he was doing a lot of talking. I was just reading reading back your piece, and forgive me if you you touched on this earlier and I missed it while I was rereading your piece, but the savings that he mentioned, did he give any specificities as to where those would be? Because they, he says we'll be simplifying the business. Does that mean getting rid of middle managers? I mean, we know that there are going to be job cuts coming in certain areas of the BBC, but where mm-hmm. are those savings coming from? If he was doing all the talking, did he give the right talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think um, that's a good question, and I think your inference is right because there there are a few things going on at the moment, and two things that are going on is he wants the commissioners to change the way they look at the hours they commission, uh, take this less is more approach. But he is insistent that that's it's not like he's taking money away from them. That's about a reshaping. Where money is going to be saved is is definitely in staffing. I think, and and when you point out middle managers, I think that's exactly right. His rhetoric is particularly interesting around the BBC's middle management and bureaucracy. 
and it's clear everybody thinks the BBC has has is bloated and that's been a thing that people have thought uh, probably since 1926 but <laughs> <laughs> since since the early days but his rhetoric is really strong around getting getting rid of a big layer of middle management and he's he's taken a few people off the executive committee the kind of big decision making committee and he's clear so last year the number of senior leaders at the BBC actually increased by three people which isn't a, a particularly good look at this time he's very clear that that is going to be reversed and I, I don't think that will be reversed by a, a small number of people I think that will be reversed by quite a few people whether mm. that's I'm not I'm not entirely sure how he'll go about it but he is clear that that redundancies in in both middle management and I think also in the wider public service team, which also actually grew last year by about 300 people. He's clear that that's going to be reversed. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of the savings come from. It's interesting that you talked about people as well. The, one of the other stories you wrote had the uh, alarming, this is an almost, audit's always an alarming word whenever you read it, because it's, it's forensically picking over people's finances and stuff like that. There's a content audit going on, which is about reapportioning money to higher value programming, I, I, I believe. That is awkward because we know we, we're in the content business. And if, if you're auditing your content, that means that some programming is surely going to fall by the wayside. Mm. Um, mm. And did he give any indications about what that kind of would be? Yeah, I mean, it's like, like I said, it's not a, it's, this isn't about taking money away. But I can mm. see why there could be some alarm in terms of the idea that the commissioners are just going to commission less shows. Ultimately, that means less opportunities for for a wider range of producers. And the way, and I haven't spoken to any producers about this directly, but I would imagine his idea is that you pump more money into shows that are already doing well. So, you know, Top Gear has been smashing it over the last couple of years under its new presenters. It's moved to BBC One. It's, it's going great guns. Maybe his idea would be instead of commissioning this lower budget motoring format, we'll put more money into Top Gear, make it fantastic. It will sell more. It will do better on iPlayer. But then what happens to the smaller producer of this smaller motoring format? This is all extremely hypothetical. So maybe that goes further down the chain and impacts the smaller indies. I don't know. It's a little bit too early to say, but that could end up being an issue regardless of the fact that he's not taking any more money away from his commissioners. Um, and what about BBC Studios? Why does this play into that? Yeah, I mean, um, like they're, they're talking strongly about commercial revenues. Uh, and I chatted briefly to the interim BBC Studios CEO, who is Tim Davies' replacement, at least for a period of a few weeks. And him and Davy subsequently are really stressing subscription revenues as and sort of creative international partnerships as a way of mitigating the, the big problems that coronavirus is going to cause. So looking at areas like Britbox, not really in the UK, but more actually in, in North America, and the soon to launch Britbox in Australia as well. John, I know you've been following this quite closely. Do, is it, is, do you think it's realistic that studios can, can sort of gamble more heavily on, on services such as Britbox? I, I mean, that, that, that was an interesting part of the story because you look at it, when you, when you hear them directly reference subscription bod as a way of maximizing revenues and bringing money into BBC studios and thus back to the BBC. 
I mean, that's that's quite interesting because we we you know for all the, the what we think the Britbox UK is a is a is a you know a decent product. It, it hasn't. Let's face it, the traction for Britbox UK has not been large. It, it it just hasn't compared to other streamers. And the fact that BBC Studios has such a hands-off approach to the UK model for them to be talking up international models is quite interesting. But I suppose the demand for British programming overseas is quite high. So a VOD service where that's all in place in the North America and now future, it's, you know, Australia is really ramping up and that's, that's looking to launch, I think, Q4 this year. Mm, mm. I think, I think that they, they might have to be onto something. The, the fact is the, the, the subscription numbers have gone high in US Gritbox. And that's possibly also driven by the fact there are other, co- other UK-focused content products on the market so that maybe they've been concentrating some of the 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 you know their attention on these services i just thought it was a really interesting model that um the head of bbc studios was talking about mm-hmm. international streamers which they have a they have an investment in as as a way of bringing in revenues I think yeah you would have been you would have been interested this this um rts event that tim davies just been speaking at he de- he definitely is hinting that the next few years we'll see more of these kind of like piecemeal subscription services that um are opening up in all different markets like across the globe he didn't really go into a massive amount of detail about it but he's clearly thinking a lot about direct to consumer there's a bbc there's a kind of bbc4 svod proposal hanging around at the moment i saw that do you think that's gaining any traction i think it's quite an interesting an interesting model and you forget really how many people internationally love that kind of content and literally cannot get it in their own countries. It's so exactly. specific and niche yep. um, to the to the UK. Mm. Um, do you think that that is something viable? Yeah, hundred percent. I think again, like it's hard to imagine serious revenue coming in for for say there are two or three, four other equivalents. But it's certainly a it's certainly a, a good forward thinking approach and is is proof, I think, of one of the reasons that Tim Davey got the DG job, which is he clearly, like, has a very solid grasp of the international TV market and clearly knows, can be forward-looking and knows what's going to do well. Uh, and he's already kind of showing that he's, ta- he's really talking up commercial in, in, this, in this regard. So I, I, I think the BBC4 thing would be a success. And I think you're exactly right, Hannah, like, the, the sort of programming that's on BBC Four is very well respected abroad and is the sort of thing that the UK is really quite good at. And expats like all over the world who don't have the opportunity to watch BBC Four regularly, I think would happily pay a few quid a month. Oh, of course, of course. You know, the fact that he's bringing in such interest about the studio side is obviously going to get flack from the right-wing press. Well, you shouldn't be concentrating on commercial it should be all public service media yeah well you're a bit you're a bit damned if you do i like your impression of the right wing press yeah yeah look i i think this is all valid i do think all of this is dwarfed by something like the government not paying for over 75 license fees which is just that that's like colossal figures also on Tuesday, we had the DCMS Culture Select Committee inquiry into the future of PSB broadcasting. 
And we had Netflix, Sky and Channel 5 or Viacom pulled up and questioned about the future of the PSBs. Uh, I know, John, uh, you were covering Sky. I don't know if you mm. can kind of glean from, glean from that what the key kind of takeaway was um, and what the general conversation was around them, the line of inquiry. As sure, you. sure. I mean, a lot like a lot of these DCMS sessions, they tread over well-trodden ground. The, the key takeaway for me is that were government to introduce further regulatory policy on on the sector and and it should be said at this juncture that sky do not want any further interventions from the government but any future regulation and policy that was introduced by the government they should do it cross sector they should ask for for evidence and an input from across the sector the media sector basically sky's point was that because of the influx of spot services pay tv providers such as themselves, as well as the PSBs, audiences are going everywhere, getting their media and their public service media from different platforms. Therefore, to push regulation through a PSB-only model actually has less impact because they're not going to where the audiences necessarily are. And, you know, I can I can see that point. You know, there is this kind of prism through, through which the, the UK government kind of <clears throat> sets its policy agenda, the PSBs, obviously they have to do it some way, but the, the audience has moved on. So um, I, can, I, can, I can see where Skype's coming from. I mean, that, the problem was that that was, that was about the most interesting thing that was said because people covered so much same, same ground. Uh, it's obviously really important, and I'm not downplaying the importance of all this, but we've heard it before, so I don't quite understand the point of it. Well, they move at a, it's a glacial pace, isn't it? People love to say there's just sort of, there's a lot of repetition. I do think with Sky, it, it was just, just under a year ago that Sky first like started floating all what seemed to be quite grand ideas about the fact that they could almost be classified as like a quasi PSB. Uh, and I think that's because uh, totally understandably, they contribute a lot of money to the, to the UK production sector. And some of that goes back into the broadcasters via BBC studios or, or ITV studios or whatnot, but it's just been quite difficult to, to pin them down on what they really want. There are ideas mm. about local news franchises and less prominence for ITV and there's been sort of mini feud that's developed with um I was just looking back at a story we wrote in March where we we headlined it ITV wants answers from Sky chief executive questions intentions over Sky's PSB review musings and reiterates call to safeguard prominence of course but it, yeah it's 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 a little bit difficult to work out what Sky wants I, I think my opinion is that Ultimately, it's difficult to imagine Sky being a quasi-PSB when you have to have a lot of money in order to have a Sky subscription. And, and the argument that ITV makes, which I side with a little bit more, is ultimately universality. And maybe it's just a little bit difficult of Sky to argue that, that they should be in, in receipt of any kind of government intervention when they're a, uh, they're a functioning, enormous company that's owned by an even bigger company in the US and you have to pay a lot of money for a subscription. I mean, I, I agree. But, you know, Ali Law, the director of policy, did make the point that Channel 5 and ITV are also privately owned and have shareholders in receipt of mm. regulatory subsidies. So 
Yeah, I agree that it, it seems to not be clear what exactly is wanted, but possibly being part of the conversation. And Hannah, you had something to say on the topic. Well, I was just thinking about the move uh, for the free to air Sky Arts and their kind of like higher kind of moral mission to make arts free and where that plays into it of, of kind of what Sky want in terms of being a PSB, well, not being a PSB, but that kind of, I think that's the really, I think Sky Arts is a really interesting kind of case study for Sky and what their ambition is in the UK. It's de- it definitely feels like they're positioning it like a little moral mission. It's interesting you say that. That is exactly the question raised by one of the MPs on the, on the select committee. He voiced whether moving Sky Arts to free to air was a cynical ploy to kind of position themselves in a way that then maybe in the, in the future they could go into the PSB sector more wholeheartedly. And Zaya Bennett, Sky's director of content, said it was unfair to characterise it like that. And he didn't want it to see as a kind of a vehicle by which Sky were then suddenly going to start buying up freeview slots for <laughs> free-to-air free to air channels. And he nipped that one in the bud. But it is interesting. I, I, I quite like the idea of Sky Arts going in front of the table. I think it's yeah. a really shrewd move. Coincidence or no coincidence, but 24 hours after this select committee hearing, we get a press release saying that Sky Arts is confirmed to be slot 11 on Freeview, which is only two slots down from BBC4, and suddenly gives a serious platform to, to this quite small arts channel to the millions of people that have a preview box. So, yeah, I was talking about universality over that earlier, but that is universality. Yeah, quite. And this wasn't the only DCMS Select Committee session uh, that we, we, we were part of. Hannah, you, you tune in for Netflix. I'm going to turn the tide on you now. What, what were the key takeaways from from that session well I kind of have to echo what you were saying about a lot of repetition because it was very similar to Anne Mensah was called up on for this one and she spoke last year I think last year um, on a House of Lords committee and it was very similar it was it was basically kind of the same line also you can kind of get a feel for um, being a little bit tied to not being able to give too much away so um, it was it was a little bit of a closed book, but the kind of uh, the main things that were gleaned and talked about, I guess, she was questioned about whether she saw a future in the license fee, and uh, it was it was quite a grilling. She wasn't backing down on it for not saying anything. I think she knew she couldn't say anything. They returned to it a few times, which I thought was quite interesting. They were like not letting her not make a comment about it. Did you feel um, like, were they, were they trying to push her to say that there's not a future for a license fee and yeah, maybe float the idea of there so. being a subscription BBC? Yeah, I think so. Um, she, in the end, said that she supported a mixed ecology with the license fee and subscription fees. She was also very complimentary of the BBC. She, she spoke more about the BBC than the other PSBs. I think the questioning of the PSBs as a bracket just kind of for her just meant the BBC. So she was saying that she would hate to see the demise of the BBC, loved its programming, supported them. So that was the kind of main, main point there. They were also kind of grilled about their role as a UK 
now a UK company and operating and again regulation because obviously being based in the Netherlands they go through the EU regulations so there was a little bit of back and forth about that and then I thought it's quite interesting their director of policy was asked about diversity and their kind of role as being now a UK based company if they're complying not complying but they're kind of stats basically on being a diverse workforce and he couldn't pull up any information he said he doesn't know if they have it and mm. it came out that he was the information was out of date and you kind of think we've well, been here for 18 months now you're trying to integrate yourself and say that you're this UK company and kind of you know you do have to think well if you're going to operate here you kind of do need to start doing a few things to fit within the within the ecosystem and the marketplace mm. so that I thought was quite interesting it was almost astounding to really flounder on a question which is like the key theme in UK broadcasting and UK production at the moment. Like we all spoke at length about how the only thing anyone was really talking about at Edinburgh was diversity. I find it, I, I thought it was incredible that he wasn't more prepared for a question around diversity stats because Netflix is quite, is well known for, for being sort of quite good on diversity and and comes in for a lot of praise for the the way that it utilizes the skills of diverse creatives and gives diverse creatives a chance. So that, that floundering I found slightly bizarre. It felt like he wasn't very prepared for a question that was definitely coming. Which is out of character because Benjamin King is usually quite polished. I mean, director of policies generally tend to be quite... Yeah, yeah, you indeed. should be prepped for it. I think what I find quite interesting with Netflix that is good to have these inquiries with them is that they do lack a lot of transparency and I do think that is problematic and I was talking to a producer today who was saying that when he works with Netflix he just it, it, like he needs transparency he needs to know how much programming costs to make the data and all of these things and that is very off-putting to work with creatively and I think it's wise to keep questioning them if they're going to operate in the same sphere. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's like the, the sheen has come off a bit, hasn't it? Like a few years ago, the the blank checks were out and indies were like so geared up for a Netflix commission in a way that is not quite the case anymore. And therefore, yeah, like you said, Hannah, you do you do want that greater transparency and and maybe indies just want Netflix to behave a little bit more like a public service broadcaster in the, the way that they interact and the way that they produce shows. True. They were grilled or grilled. They were questioned on their kind of contribution to PSBs and how they work together. I know Anne Mensa talked a lot about not seeing them as competitors, but as collaborators or mm. complementing the PSBs. I wonder kind of, John, what was your thinking around, because I know you watched the session too, what was kind of your thinking around how Netflix works with the PSBs and, and kind of that relationship and how valuable you think their contribution is, basically? Yeah, well, I mean, it, again, it was something that she, she echoed from her Lord's evidence where she said co-productions are Netflix's lifeblood which at the time, when I first reported, it was quite interesting because everyone had talked about how as Netflix became more of a studio's business themselves, as opposed to just a, a media company that harnesses the expertise of other people, they're becoming more as a kind of a commissioner and an in-house 
maker, so they're probably likely to do less co-productions or fewer co-productions, but that's, that's not proved the case. And from my perspective, I think they need to keep doing co-productions because the people that they, um, they made programming with, like the BBC or Channel 4 or whomever, they, they offer really good creative input and they make great shows. And now on to our favourite section of the weekly podcast, the old what we've been watching. So guys, John, start with you. What have you been watching this week? Oh my God, what haven't I been watching? I've watched so much TV this week on various different platforms. So I, I finished Des on ITV, the new, new Pictures True Crime drama about serial killer Dennis Nelson. It was excellent because it's it was all about talking and people being in conversation which is sometimes some of the most difficult acting i find to do and to bring drama into that like david Tennant did and jason watkins and daniel mays was superb i didn't catch white house farm new pictures other earlier 2020 true crime series even though it looked incredible but this one this one drew me in quite comprehensively um how, how was david tennant because he's he looks i've seen like little video clips of dennis nilson and he looks absolutely uncanny yeah it was a, a fantastic rendition even if you don't know anything about dennis nilson his performance was incredible like he a completely amazing machiavellian character flip-flopping from cooperative to sinister to obstructive to really shrewd i could just watch him and jason watkins in conversation in there and as they do a lot in the suit in the drama all day and they were they were fantastic so yeah just quickly before max comes in i've also been watching i hate susie which is brilliant that's that was incredible i've been my way through that uh, and various amazon sports documentaries the um all or nothing tottenham hotspur is Kind of a, a slow burner for me. You've really anyway, packed it in this week. Watch so much TV. Watch so much TV. Max, anyway. what are you watching? I've watched four episodes of I Hate Susie. That's what, what I've been watching. Yeah, it's really good. I keep I'm holding it up in high esteem because it begins with I, so I want it to be as good as I May Destroy You, and it's like half as good as I May Destroy You, and that's not even like an insult to to the Sky Show. I think it's it's like really it's really well done loses me in places a little bit i think it can get like a little bit abstract in places um but billy piper is awesome yeah i love her super I'm... underrated is she underrated yeah. or maybe she's rated yeah i think but... she is underrated yeah. i think her performance in i hate susie is phenomenal i think it there are times cool when girl. there are times when i yeah secret diary of a cool girl amazing there are times when i feel like she yeah she's holding it up a little bit but then some of the some of the dialogue is is super witty and i'm here for that because it's got shades of that succession dialogue the lucy preble succession dialogue which i'm really really into anna what have you been watching you over there in the host's chair i i started watching that the duchess the netflix one with Catherine ryan odd i was i really don't know what to make of it i've watched like four episodes don't know don't know why but it's like i keep sitting back being like what just happened like what it's quite stereotypical jokes as well like there's a lot of like oh the pta mums and a deadbeat dad i don't know there's just a lot of mm. which is really playing into quite a lot of stereotypical humor but it's really random at points and i'm like i just don't know what's happening 
Um, so that's what I've been watching. And then outside of that, I I have been watching Come Dine With Me on Netflix, like maybe religiously. Nice. Um, like late at night, like properly getting excited to get into bed and watch like three episodes of Come Dine With Me. And it's nice because seeing it from season one, like I got to watch the first ever episode of Come Dine With Me where they set up the format. Here's the show, the first ever episode, and like all the things that kind of come back in Come Dine With Me after each episode, that was all laid out in episode one. And God, it was great. That's incredible. Do they take to the format easily or does everyone get a bit confused? (laughs) Yeah, like they take, like it's literally like you can take that first episode and it literally is every other Come Down With Me episode with different people. Amazing. It's, I'm definitely going to watch tight. that. It's great. That's the and best that's recommendation we've had so far. Thanks, John. Thanks, Max. That was a fun, fun time picking through what's happened in the TV world this week because it's been very exciting. It's been a pleasure, Hannah. Yeah, it's been great, Hannah. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap podcast. I'm reporter Hannah Bowler, and you've been listening to my wonderful colleagues, senior reporter Max Goldbart and international editor John Elms. You can check out past episodes of the podcast on Spotify and iTunes or listen on the broadcast website at www.broadcastnow.co.uk.